Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Af Malhotra on Straight Talk with Af. Now, once again, I have, as I said, the habit of not disappointing you. In fact, pleasing you. Some people say, hey, take a positive spin on it. Pleasing you and delighting you. Today, I have a fantastic author uh, who's written a number of very important books. And the most recent book that he's authored on the 20th of Feb, and one of the things I'm going to ask this author in a second is all of his books have been released in Feb. Don't know why, whether his birthday's in Feb or it's just coincidental, but my research tells me all of them have been released in February at different in different years, 2019, 2017, 19, and then 2023. So maybe there's a auspicious, that's an auspicious month for our guest today. Um, he has authored this book that uh, has captured my attention because, of course, it's about the issue we've been discussing on Straight Talk uh, for many, many years now, actually, re relating to being human and making sure that we don't sort of lose sight of what it means to be human, the, the, the mojo and the oomph, the X factor that comes from doing this sort of stuff, sharing a glass of wine, having a meal together, uh, meeting each other face to face, albeit that we are on Zoom right now. These are very important uh, aspects of human development, human evolution. Disagreements is a part of human evolution. And all of these factors make us who we are. But at the same time, we have this dark side of technology that we also aware of, which is, you know, dominating our minds, especially the younger generations who are without question addicted to social media in a way that is unprecedented and actually quite worrying for many of us. And I'm a parent and I can put up my hand and say, that does concern me, although I am a technologist. So uh, Dr. Tomas Chamorro Pramuzic, welcome to Straight Talk with Af. What a pleasure to have you on the show today. It's a great pleasure to be here and thank you for inviting me up. It's, it's, it's going to be an amazing conversation because your book, I Human, um, you know, with the subtitle AI Automation and the, um, uh, the quest to reclaim our humanity, the quest to reclaim our humanity. You couldn't have done a better job of, of creating that sort of a title. Um, before we go into the book, because there's so much to talk about, I'd like to know about Tomas. Who is this person? Who are you? Where are you from? Tell us about your personal story a little bit, uh, because that is how Straight Talk works. And then we connect that to why you are doing what you're doing today, if that's okay. Of course, of course. And uh, listen, I don't know if I can match or live up to the expectations that you set up with that very kind introduction. But I will say uh, to disappoint our listeners from the very beginning that I have no idea why the books are published in February. I wasn't even aware of this algorithm. It's something that the publishers decide they must know. Maybe, you know, they're not big enough for the Christmas release, so they come right after that. I'm sure, you know, they have different windows in mind, but, you know, yeah. thank you for pointing that out. I'll do a little bit of digging. So a little bit about myself. So uh, I'm born and bred or raised in Buenos Aires, Argentina. That's still my, you know, what I, the place I called home, even though I've not lived there for over 20 years. Uh, I'm 47. Um, I grew up in a middle-class family. Um, my parents were academics. I was never really interested in studying. Actually, I first tried to become a tango dancer, then a football or soccer player for our American kind of uh, uh, listeners. Wow. Failed at both. And then, you know, pretty much the third cliched profession that you can do if you are an Argentine and the most popular if you want to study something is 
I started to go into psychology. You know, Buenos Aires, especially the area where I grew up, uh, is called Villa Freud or Villa Freud. It boasts the highest concentration of psychoanalysts per capita in the world. So, you know, it was very natural for me, having lived in an environment where a lot of people went to see a shrink or had a shrink coming to their homes, to be interested in the human condition and in, you know, things like personality, personality disorder, etc. I started my career in that area. I became a clinical psychologist and I had patients, narcissistic, schizophrenic, paranoid, psychopathic patients. It was very depressing working in a public hospital in which I didn't have access to great medications. So they were either overly medicated and therapy couldn't do anything, or they were under-medicated and therapy couldn't do anything either. And mostly because of the deteriorating conditions, political and economic conditions of my country. When I got to the age of 24, 25, I was determined to leave, which I managed to do, getting a scholarship that got me into London first. And then, you know, for the past 20 plus years, I've been sort of oscillating between the UK, mainland Europe and the US. And what I do is connected to what you do up. I'm also kind of an, a technology entrepreneur. I'm very interested in talent technologies. So any tools like AI that help us understand human potential better. That's how I got interested in AI, you know, and kind of the intersection between psychology and technology or human and artificial intelligence. And my day job today is I run innovation for a big recruitment firm called Manpower Group. It's a big human capital firm. And we do all sorts of talent solutions. And I still teach, albeit very part-time at the UCL and Columbia. And in the free time, I write books to try to kind of, you know, spread the word and the gospel on the issues that I'm interested in. Wow. Okay. So, and you said you don't have much, don't, you don't have an impressive past. That's super impressive. I, I want to ask you a question and it, you know, straight talk is, is about, it's an unscripted conversation, as you know, it's like I was in a bar with you or having a coffee or a glass of wine with you. Okay. So I'm going to ask you questions that I think are unusual. I believe unusual and aren't typical of a podcast, if that's okay. So the first thing I want to ask you is a little bit about your background, because you talked about this per capita. I didn't know that, by the way, the per capita ratio of the number of psychoanalysts. First question to you is what? Why is, did you ever work out why that's the case? Well, I mean, it's obviously because we have a lot of issues, or at least we perceive that we have a lot of issues. I mean, you know, that's a kind of fun, short and obvious answer. But actually, you know, there is an interesting socioeconomic reason, which is that, you know, uh, up until about the late 19th century, so like 1890 or so, Argentina and especially Buenos Aires was one of the richest places in the world. It was really the equivalent back then and until sort of... Uh, I would say the beginning of World War II, the equivalent of a Dubai or Singapore or yeah. Miami today, where a lot of people from the older world, from Europe and kind of industrialized or kind of historically richer economies, yeah. went to make money and things were good. We had a booming agricultural sector. We have a very hard and still have a very educated kind of middle class. And at some point, you know, Buenos Aires was so wealthy that it imported the traditions of upper-class Viennese society and then New York society, amongst which you can count, you know, going to a shrink, a psychotherapist, specifically psychoanalysis, was very big, still is very big. 
it was almost like today you would go to you know your pilates class or meditation mm -hmm. classes yeah. etc back then i mean if you were anybody you would see your psychoanalyst two or three times a week even if you didn't have any real problems and actually if you didn't then it probably makes sense if you actually had some serious conditions as the science has shown for many decades now that won't solve your issues mm -hmm. so you know that kind of aspirational european and uh, you know french uh, austrian uh, north american kind of attitude brought psychoanalysis there and it had a very affluent class that actually um you know gravitated towards it now i would say dispositionally from personality standpoint we are quite neurotic we are quite negative you know we have things like tango and we love we have this very french existential attitude very very different from what you have in britain with very pragmatic and sort of like you know um very uh, empirical anglo-saxon way of thinking about things yeah mm -hmm. it's much more existential it's much more romantic it's almost metaphysical and that means that everybody's thinking very hard about their problems even when they actually don't have more than first world problems mm, mm, how interesting i find the cultural element to be so important in in the makeup of you as the person you or me or anyone the one because no matter what age you look at, we have to cycle back and and go connect the dots as to the cultural dynamics, how you you know those all those variables that we now know of, which by the way is totally offshoot, is the argument against meritocracy versus DEI, where what's you know where people say, oh my god, stop because I'm a big proponent of DEI, of course. And people say that's nonsense. It should be meritocratic. And then I then talk about, well, hang on a second. Merit, meritocracy is not fair because it depends on where you start from. Mm -hmm. And culture has a lot to do with it. And of course, I wasn't aware Bonis Aires was like a Dubai um, just after post-World War II. And of course, it's had a different path since then. And so that's important. So tell me a bit about you know, you've written you've written a couple of really insightful books. I haven't read them all, but I will. You you wrote one in 2017 about the talent delusion, and then you wrote one which, of course, so many people must have quoted because it's all about why do so many. The title is why do so many, uh, uh, why do so many incompetent men become leaders? Now that's like you know you're stirring the stirring the pot in in 2023 beautifully. You know, if you wrote that now, that book would be like number one on the charts. Because of a whole the whole gender movement, which is which has taken shape quite nicely, and then of course you wrote this book called I Human about AI. So tell me a little bit about um, is there is there a connection between these three books mm -hmm. that now you can make looking backwards, you know, historically connect the dots. Uh, obviously, you can't tell what happened then, but do you feel there's a connection between these three? Yeah, I think there absolutely is, or at least you know. Uh, I it's easy for me to connect the dots at least looking back. And in yeah. fact, you know, not that I want to advertise or promote a fourth book, but it really with me starts with the first uh, trade book or popular book that I wrote, which was published uh, in 2012 called Confidence. Okay. Uh, the surprising truth about uh, how much you really need it, which has a very interesting story because you know, after being a full-time academic and already a full-time professor for about uh, 10, 12 years, um, a book agent got in touch and said, oh, you know, you know, your research seems to be of more popular, wider interest. Uh, do you want to do a book? 
And in a very kind of Argentine overconfident way, I said, yeah, of course, sure, you know, let's do it. I have a publisher that wants to commission a book on confidence. So I oh, yeah, of course, yeah. I'll do it. It was a very, very difficult process to completely retrain myself to yeah. write for a popular audience. And actually, you know, I still have that kind of um, approach that I had to really, in my mind, be an expert in an area before I can write even for a popular audience. So to cut mm. the long story short, um, when I delivered the manuscript to a big American publisher, it was Penguin, it is Penguin. It wasn't the book they were expecting. You know, they were expecting a book that basically was a typical self-help book, thinking, oh, believe in yourself, you think you're great, you are, whatever. And this was basically the closest you could get to a heretic, anti-confidence manifesto that critiqued, you know, this mindless and not very intellectual tendency to worship people who worship themselves and just tell people that the only thing that matter is whether they believe they're great, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it was a very kind of a difficult process to negotiate between the original manuscript and what the publisher wanted. The mm -hmm. book came, down, came out, not many people read it. It was a very interesting learning experience for me, but that to me started kind of uh, this trend first to really try to identify gaps between sort of like urban legends or popular myths and things that we take for granted and the evidence that we have from either my research or existing academic research. If you think about the extension of, you know, this idea that confidence is not good when it's very high, mm. but it's good when it's aligned with your actual competence and that what we should try to promote is really accurate levels of self-awareness as opposed to very high exacerbated levels of self-belief applying that to sort of like our current hr issues and problems that's what the talent delusion is mm. it's the book that you know i thought not just hr professionals but leaders in general should read if they want to understand talent and create a talent-centric organization and it's called it was going to be called you know rethinking talent or you know i don't know understanding human potential something boring my editor at the time, who was a very cynical, more sarcastic person than myself, very smart Finnish woman, said, look, all the time you're talking about delusions, 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 we should call it the talent delusion, which I think is a good title. The subtitle is why data and not intuition is key to unlocking human potential. That's basically the theme, even when you, when you get to the book on why so many incompetent men become leaders and how to fix it. The how to fix it part is let's be more data centric. Let's mm. focus not on gender and focus on talent, because if you actually create the conditions for meritocracy to exist, you get diversity and you can then start to worry about getting inclusion, which I know is at the center of what you preach and what you do with your own kind of, uh, you know, uh, activities and uh, efforts to kind of promote diversity economics or help people understand the ROI or business case for mm. diversity. And now maybe if we get to the last one, you know, it's a slight departure. I was actually interested in doing a more philosophical book on what it means to be human in this age in which so many of our interactions and activities are dependent on machines, technology, computer, yeah. just like you started the podcast during, you know, the dark periods of the pandemic 
I started to write this book during the dark period of the pandemic. So I didn't do a podcast but, or video cast, but I started to think. And of course, I was detached from in-contact person or real physical interactions with others, except, you know, my, um, you know, my, my wife and my kids. And I became very aware of the influence that AI and technology is having on us and of yeah. the dehumanizing potential that yeah. living in the AI age have. And basically what I said to publishers is like, look, I cannot write a book on what it means to be human today at work or in life in general without going a little bit deeper into AI. So I wanted to do a book that is a book on AI that actually focuses on what I thought is the neglected aspect of the AI age, which is humans. Yeah. Um, it was finished in October 2022. The original book had a chapter on generative AI. The publisher said, what is this? Nobody cares mm -hmm. about that. It came out, you know, a week after OpenAI launched ChatGPT. And because of that, it's getting a lot of interest because actually, even though it's not a book on generative AI, it's a book on how we need to rethink human expertise, human skills, human talent, and humanity as a whole in this age in which we can, for the first time, outsource even our thinking and creativity to computers. So, yeah. you know, the, the underlying or common thread is always the interest in human psychology and humanity, but I tackle it from different aspects. The first is more a self-help book. The second is an HR book. The third is a diversity manifesto. Mm -hmm. And now we get to who we are in this age of smart machines and how, you know, we need to try not to become robots or machines ourselves. Yeah. If we want to preserve some of the aspects that actually make us relatively interesting, at least according to us. Yeah, brilliant. That's a beautiful summary. Thank you. And the connections now make a lot of sense. I love the way you describe your first book and on confidence and how you wrote something totally different to what your publisher would have wanted you to write. And that's a, that's a very interesting observation because I've interviewed about 110 authors now on this show and learned so much from all of all of you because you know you each one of you has their own experiences and like the journey of entrepreneurship like the journey of life there are many failures that of course never get talked about or hardships or minefields or barriers or hurdles whatever word you want to use and those are more interesting I think those are more interesting because let's be honest, what is being human? Being human is, is not yeah. trying to achieve whatever we think perfection is or, um, you know, this sort of narcissistic existence that we are all sort of wrapped around or enveloped in because of the social media that we see around us. It is about all of those fallacies and flaws. That is what makes it super interesting is that, shit, I got it wrong. Oh my God, I wrote this yeah. book. I don't know what I was writing, but I wanted to write it, but no one wanted to read it, you know? And as a musician, and I can see, I expect that you're a musician mm -hmm. too, because I am as well. I see a clavinova, or that's what mm -hmm. we used to call it in those days, and then a real piano on the right. <laughs> so are you a musician? Yeah, you play the piano, I guess. Yeah, I say, you know, I I I, I can play to high enough standards that I can enjoy myself and yeah. I can listen to it. And if the people listen to me are close friends or relatives, they might be you know, polite enough to pretend that it's good, but that's where my skills finish. I love the fact that you use the term clavinova. Yeah, I mean, I call it an electric keyboard. Uh, this one, I think it's uh, Yamaha or what is it? Maybe it's a Roland. Yeah. That one, the kids love. I prefer to play that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about, yeah, I think, you know, the human experience 
I think part of what's inherently human is to try to answer this question, even though we know that it's very difficult to answer mm. it with any degree of certainty, objectivity, but also the inability to stop asking that question is also human. And, you know, I'm interested in how culture and the specific kind of periods of human evolution refocus our answers, right? For so, like, if you think about, you know, for maybe 2000 years, we looked at God and religion for an answer to that question. Then, you know, with the rise of the Enlightenment and Darwin and evolutionary kind of biology, etc., we were very territorial, reassuring ourselves and others that, you know, we're better or we're unique compared to other animals, even if we descend from them. And I think now, you know, we increasingly look at what machines can't do mm. to conclude what makes us human. And, you know, I find it quite interesting that a lot of critics of AI repeatedly point out that, you know, there's a bunch of psychological traits or soft skills like empathy, emotional intelligence, and, you know, self-awareness, curiosity, maybe deep curiosity that artificial intelligence cannot emulate or cannot display. Mm. I always say, well, there's not much evidence that the majority of humans display any of these traits on a regular basis, right. even though we can, could, and should. So I think, you know, it's very interesting to kind of see how we rethink ourselves yeah. if this truly is a very different era in our evolution. And that's basically what I tried to address with the book. Yeah, yeah, you're bang on. I want to take you to, um, and I think be being a musician is very important because it's the, the creativity that is... Um, spurred on or is um, harnessed when you have art, arts, music, or any other form of creative talent or skills that you've built over time is also a huge part of the discussion right now, which is where I want to go, which is about, yes, in November last year, generative AI <clears throat> went mainstream with ChatGPT and the rest is history. And even to this date, there are many of us who have, you know, um, who are on the hype curve. Some of us don't even know this thing exists, but they've probably read an article in the local newspaper or in the Times or in the FT or something. And I wanted to get your opinion on, and I want to go into the dark side first, if that's okay. Um, I'm sure we'll have the good stories and the, the positive bright side. On the dark side, there is a inherent fear amongst Let's, let's call it the pyramid, just for the sake of it. There are many of us at the top of the pyramid, not because we're more important, it's just because we climb there really fast because we're into tech, who, and a small group of us who understand the implications of Gen AI, the good and the bad. And we practice it, we use it, we prompt. We're like mini prompt engineers, right? We understand la large language models. I, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not a technologist, but I'm a business tech entrepreneur like you as well. And I, I'm using LLMs right now. I'm building LLMs with my Diversity Economics Institute. I get it. I see its good side. I see it where it's not working that well. I see where it requires a lot of money and work and, and so on. And that's all fine. But there is there are many in the pyramid at the bottom and, and in the middle who don't really know what this is about. And actually, there's a deep sense of fear and concern kicking in. Let's be honest, amongst many people all over the world, even in markets like uh, forget the West, even India, even in markets like India that is thriving on outsourcing and offshoring and pretty much running innovation centers, you know, large, massive innovation centers, as you know, for just about every listed company on the planet. Even, even there, there is a sense of concern around, well, if repetitive tasks, which is what we do at a much cheaper cost, is now going to be replaced by this generative AI 
kind of software revolution, then what do we do next? What do we it, believe it or not? They also have a concern, right? So mm-hmm. there's this conversation about jobs being lost. It's come up again and again. You know, thousands of companies have done studies. We're trying to now analyze all of the studies and synthesize all of the data. Mm-hmm. To figure out, you know, if McKinsey says 40% and BCG says 30 and then someone else says 20, what are we actually dealing with here? That's another exercise. But tell me a little bit about, um, it's a pointed question. I want to give you a scenario, okay? About two or three weeks ago, I watched two CEOs who you'll know of or you might even know them. Two very important CEOs. One is a chap called Bill McDermott, who is the CEO of ServiceNow. And then the other CEO is Jensen Huang, who's become super popular because of NVIDIA's, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much meteoric rise out of nowhere because of the AI, um, Gen AI story. Now, both these guys were sitting on some CNBC or some news channel together talking about how they're in partnership together. And the future, it's a structural change. It is seismic. It is disruptive, like the mobile phone was many years ago, you know, or the smartphone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the question came up, yeah, this is all great, but what about the workforce? And they said, of course, the workforce, we have to retrain them. We have to reskill them. And it went on. Right. Now, mm-hmm. I'd like us to challenge that a little bit. And I need to understand from you. In simple terms, for the, for our audience, if I was someone who was watching this episode and I am uh, terrified, okay, I'm terrified because I don't know what the hell this thing is. I've I've been on, I've got a subscription. I don't really know what how it can impact my life or my job, but I'm worried. Tell me first what you think Gen AI is. Number one, number two, mm-hmm. what what is the truth behind this job loss? retraining, eventually the jobs will come back. What this, Let's cut through all of that. What's your view on that? So two yeah. questions. Yeah, so I think, you know, to define generative AI, not for what it is in a technically correct or academically accurate yeah. way, but more in, in terms of the almost like, you know, functional or pragmatic implications that it has for most people, I think they can really think of it as the evolution of a chatbot. And, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of offshore customer service, IT, et cetera, jobs that have existed in India, Argentina, and many other places for a couple of decades. And most people will have interacted with chatbots through websites when they have a complaint or they need to book travel, et cetera. Up until this year, really, most of them were really bad, not very good, et cetera. So think about an evolution of that that is 10x or 100x to the point that now everybody can have a personal virtual assistant in their phone or in the screens that can actually uh, carry out a lot of the tasks, problem solving, and even creative um, tasks that they need to encounter. So. Basically, uh, you can use this to communicate with others. It can draft or create emails. It can create work reports. It can basically synthesize or analyze information. I think it's like where chatbots meet Google search and Wikipedia. And what's really impressive about this is that they have a real conversational feel or sense to it, whereby, you know, it feels like you're talking to a human, a human assistant that, you know, Let's face it, if it can do a lot of the things that real human assistants do, then it will be disruptive to a lot of jobs in the job market. I mean, 
I'm usually not an optimist in general and on these issues, but I do think getting to the second question that you asked that there are reasons to be rationally optimistic about what might actually happen. First of all, uh, you know, whether it's McKinsey, BCG or other reports, we have to understand that in the past, in the recent past, we have been extreme in these predictions. Most famously, the book published by Oxford Said uh, Scholars, or I think it's the Internet and Cyber Kind of Technology Studies Institute at Oxford called Big Data in 2013, predicted that today a lot of the jobs that exist wouldn't exist anymore. The economists and others have written about how off these predictions were. Moral of the story is if you're going to make predictions into the future, on the future, for which nobody has data on, make sure that you predict at least 50 or 100 years into the future so everybody you know is dead and they can't hold you accountable <laughs> otherwise you know it's safer to talk about the present or the past yeah and if we look at that i do think that the comparison of like smartphone or other areas or instance in the digital revolution is more relevant look talent markets continue to intensify and continue to be very tight more or less everywhere, unemployment rates are at an historical low rate. More or less everywhere, there's many more new jobs that are created because of technology than people willing to do those jobs, sometimes because of the skill shortage, sometimes because they're not interested, sometimes because of depressed wages, etc. But really, if you look at places like the US or the UK, the number of job vacancies continues to increase and the number of job applicants really stays either the same or goes right. down. Right. So humans are needed and humans will be in the loop. So, you know, technology will do what it always did, which is it will destroy some jobs, create many new jobs in turn. People are talking about how prompt engineers are now more important than machine learning mm. scientists or engineers. Soon prompt engineers will not be needed because AI will learn to prompt itself, but there will be something else that comes. Right. And right. so I think the big disruption will come in the sense that existing jobs will completely change in the skills constellation they require. And whether you're a lawyer, you know, physicist, a teacher, a marketer, a salesperson, or a customer service officer, mm. how you do your job and the value that you bring to that job will change and has probably changed already as a function of what AI can do. So it's a little bit like, you know, the Uber app didn't eliminate human taxi drivers, but it completely eliminates the need for taxi drivers to understand how to go from A to B in a city and makes it far more important that they have a cool playlist, a nice conversation, and that the cars are clean and that they actually drive well. You know, mm -hmm. if you think about London, there's famous studies done where the original black cab drivers or the traditional taxi drivers in London, their hippocampus, the area of the brain that is engaged in memorizing stuff is bigger than controls because famously to pass the exam for a taxi driver, they need to know every single historical address or site by heart without even looking at a map. Correct. There's still black cab drivers, but they all look at maps today. And what's important is that, you know, they provide a good service. And I think that metaphor can be applied to every job. So, look, I think there's no need to be terrified. And when I see the cover of Time magazine saying the end of humanity, I mean, it's, it's quite frankly, you know, not serious and a little bit apocalyptic and unnecessary, although it might sell. 
But I do worry more for people who don't worry at all because they think it's business as usual, they're experienced enough and they don't have to pay attention to this. I think a healthy degree of concern and maybe, you know, worrying too much is better than worrying too little. But what we should be doing, whatever you are doing and whoever you are, is experimenting, trying things out and looking at how this thing can add value. Because fundamentally, if there's lots of things that are predictable, standardized and you know, automatable, they should be automatable. Mm. I love the autocomplete function of my emails and right. I use it 50% of my time because let's face it, most of the time, what I have to tell people that I email is very predictable and very boring. And I don't want to think how to be creative on those emails. I want to save time in order to do creative stuff somewhere else. And if there was AI that can actually email for me all together and you answer with your AI and that mm. basically frees up 30 or 40% of our time, that's great, so long as we don't waste it on TikTok, Instagram, or YouTube, and we actually reinvest it on something that is fulfilling and more useful for our careers and our lives. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a nice way of putting it, actually, because I think you, what you're saying, the examples you've given, I mean, Uber is a good example. And so the black taxi driver is a great example. I actually remember the time when Uber was about to launch. If you remember, there was this huge... Um, sort of battle against the traditional way of doing things, which is the black taxi drivers. Let's not forget that was their livelihood. They spent years actually training for that. It was a very, very hard exam. It's like a Navy SEAL exam, right? It's right. just, you don't have to run around. You have to, you have to use this and fire the hippocamp- hippocampus. And they were really distraught when Uber came in. They were like, how dare you use just a satellite navigation system and and so on and so forth. But now, if you go into a black cab in London, and I know you come regularly, you will see the the cabbie has a sat-nav. The cabbie actually relies on a sat-nav because they believe it's more efficient, a better use of their time. And, you know, maybe they're stressed from the day. Maybe they're exhausted. Why do they need to remember the streets when a machine can help them do that? Um, there's another dimension to this, which I find interesting. You know, um, there's, uh, I spent some time at Harvard as well, and I was at one of the alum events recently, and a whole bunch of academics were discussing this with a few startup people. Always like startup founders because they are very pragmatic, as you know, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. talk about the real stuff, like you roll up your sleeves and it's like, shit, it doesn't work. You know, that's the reality because I'm trying the LLM, it doesn't work or it does work and, and, and it's more sort of pragmatic. And there was a debate going on, on about, uh, this is a good side, by the way about how generative AI can actually make us more intelligent, all of us. How generative AI, if you ask ChatGPT right now, if you ask ChatGPT right now, uh, what are the what is the fallacy of meritocracy? And give me data, uh, accurate data, give me case studies, and give me the names of authors who've written books to support this point. It will, inside 10 seconds, answer that question for you, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Think of the power of that. In fact, I use, this is a live example. I used it and I was in a briefing the other day and we're talking about something, something to do with DEI and meritocracy. I thought, let me see what chat GPT has to say. And it built a a very coherent argument with sources. Mm. And I thought to myself, okay, now how have I become dumber or have I become, um, uh, you know, has my mind become richer because of this? And I figured out that my mind's become richer because A, I'm playing this back to you now. But I read through it two or three times and I started to critique it. I thought, is that fair? I'm not sure if that, that's fair. Actually, that's a good point. Is that fair? I'm not sure. And so I was do, I was analyzing. In fact, I could have gone into a debate if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. 
with mm-hmm. GPT to get my thinking clear. Whereas previously I would have had to think myself and be this intellectual who's read 50 books and a thousand books and interviewed 110 people. Now I can engage in the debate with the AI and become mm-hmm. smarter. Mm-hmm. What do you, what's your view? Because you're an academic, you're a business mm-hmm. leader, you're a tech entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you've got so many hats. Tell me what you think about that. So first, you know, I think that if, uh, you know, Voltaire, Diderot, and the sort of like, you know, pioneers and founders of the Enlightenment, uh, I mean, you know, who were the encyclopedias of the time, and they actually yeah. went through a manual process of compiling all the knowledge that was available. Imagine if they had ChatGPT, right? I mean, they wouldn't even believe it, and they would probably spend all day on it. Uh, you know, so, I mean, you know, it's fantastic that this tool has gone from having zero to a hundred million users faster than TikTok and Instagram, because it is quite geeky, you know, whereas you say Instagram, very narcissistic, TikTok, you know, it's like digital crack co- cocaine, and it's been, it's like the, so I think that gives me hope that actually people are quite curious Partly, they want to use it in a pragmatic sense to make their job more interesting or actually work smart and do more with less, which is what productivity is about and what technology is about. But partly, I think they are curious. As a psychologist, I spend a lot of time using it because it's a great way to crowdsource what most people think about a subject, even with the guardrails that it has, right? And when people point out that, okay, you ask it to crack jokes on Biden and it it only gives you 10 but if you ask it to crack jokes on Trump, it gives you 20. Therefore, it's, you know, it has a liberal bias. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite interesting that the developers have gone to great lengths to insert the guardrails to actually make it more objective than most humans are. We love our biases so much that we actually dislike it for being so politically incorrect. It's a little bit like the BBC, you know, that people on the left accuse it of being right and people on the right accuse it of being woke. So it might be the highest possible degree of objectivity that something can have, which is to make everybody equally unhappy, you know, on expertise. I think, look, it's a little bit Wikipedia-esque in that if you don't know anything about the subject, you can go from zero knowledge to 70% very quickly. And that's great. In fact, Wikipedia might be better because you actually have sources and it's vetted by experts and it's a very altruistic exercise by humans trying to make humans smarter. Here, of course, generative AI can hallucinate or bullshit, which actually we are threatened by because we thought bullshitting is a is an inherently <laughs> human quality, and now we have AI. That's brilliant, but, yeah. But so I think that uh, it's a little bit like any other area. Like if you have expertise in, in, in an area, let's say hmm. if you know about wine, music, movies, travel, or I don't know, medieval history, you're probably not going to use this or any other tool that is out there to tell you what most people like or dislike or think about something. But actually, it's quite useful to use it so that you know that you know better, right? So if if I know about wine, I don't look at Vivino and I don't take a picture of the labels to say, okay, I should buy this one because I know. And actually, increasingly, generative AI should be used for us to assess whether we know, and then remember, you still have to demonstrate to other people that you know more than yes. the tool that is out there. So basically, yeah. you know, I think the analogy that I would use is that this is a little bit like the intellectual equivalent to the fast food industry. It's yeah. a very quick, cheap, at scale 
you know, um, maybe tasty and quite addictive way to, um, you know, to nourish our hungry mind, but it's not very nutritious. I know you're interested in well-being, so, you know, we might talk about this as well. But hopefully it won't kill farm to table or slow food or gastro, you know, pubs. It would hopefully let us value the craftsmanship and the element of deep curiosity and critical thinking that you were describing. And it's like, yeah. I love it. I play with it, but actually I go deeper. So I think we need both. Sometimes you want burger and fries and soft mm. drinks and that's okay. But if you only do that, you're probably not going to advance your intellect, particularly because that's the stuff that everybody can access. And especially right. if you want to be creative, like imagine if you wanted to start your next venture, you cannot seriously go to ChatGPT and say, tell me how I can make 100 million pounds or dollars in my network and actually do it. Because every other person can do that. But yeah. it's probably useful for you to ask that question to know how you can deviate from the stuff that everybody else is thinking right. about. Right. And look, the same goes for... So I think there is that very democratic and meritocratic element that this could have in terms of lowering the barriers to entry and being an equalizer so long as you have curiosity and so long as you have the time and the skills to invest in going beyond that and adding the human value that machines will never be able to add. I'll give you a final, final example that I think is very important and get, gets us back to music. Spotify probably has enough data on its artists and musical preferences, etc., to actually automate all of the artists that are there. And, you know, we already saw AI improvising like Miles Davis or completing Schubert's Unfinished Symphony and experts not realizing that it was AI, right? Spotify could actually use AI to automate all of these artists, run a more profitable business and give us what we want. I don't think that would kill human creativity. I think it will push musicians to try to invent something that is not there right now. And that algorithms cannot do because it's not based on past data. And same happened, you know, with Andy Warhol in pop art, with the invention of photography and digital photography. So I think we need to have faith in human ingenuity. But right now, what's impressive is that we have created something that can really synthesize, reproduce and copy all the stuff that is predictable. And a lot of this stuff should be copied because it is predictable and it doesn't require human creativity. I mean, you know, Elevator music has existed for a while before AI. And if you have a little bit of a taste in music or not, you won't buy that music or consume it. Same for microwave meals, etc. So I think doing something at scales and gaining an efficiency doesn't corrupt or destroy the ability to do things better and to actually deploy our talents to do something creative. Yeah, yeah, you're bang on. This is a point around uh, going back to creativity for a second, because the human aspects of um, uh, the human advantage, the human X factor, let's call it that for a second. Mm. And I'll, I'll go to music because we're talking about music. And, you know, in my instrument, I play the Indian drums, the tablas, like you play the piano. And they're funnily enough, both called percussion instruments because we play mm. them like this, mm -hmm. um, which is, again, quite interesting. Now, in the tabla, there are many tabla players, like there are many piano players. There are some tabla players who are incredible. And there's some piano players who are incredible, but not all, right? There's some tabla players who, when you play, you're like, you know, technically you're, you're flawless. 
technically you're flawless. Like I can't say anything to you, but there's something missing. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Now, when you, when now, you know, that observation, that sensory skill is what makes us human. Now you as a musician will know this, right? That that's mm-hmm. something that that you know that that I can't explain it, but it's that there's something that you've mm-hmm. or you're you're you are you, you know when a, a a talent spotter finds someone and says you're just, you're going to be a hero, you're just going to be a hero. Oh, you're going to be the best musician ever. There is that there is a um, unscientific, intuitive, um, sensory awakening that happens in that moment where someone has spotted something and says, "I I just love it." That magic is not is not yep. created by AI. Cannot be created by AI. Um, call it sensory. Mm-hmm. Call it EQ. Call it mm-hmm. whatever you know, um, and and so on. And so for that reason, for those listening to this, if you're concerned that you're going to be disrupted or disabled or lose a job and be useless and sit, you know, be sitting in some corner somewhere um, trying to figure out life, that's not going to mm-hmm. happen. Because what I think we need to do is there's a huge enlightenment opportunity, a, a huge sort of renaissance, a revival of a renaissance, I think, of uh, renaissance of humanity, because mm-hmm. this moment is now going to give us, I hope, an opportunity to figure out what's so special about us. And mm-hmm. uh, damn, we keep reading about ancient civilization and what they got it, right? And, you know, yoga, uh, inner consciousness, you know, meditation. If you've ever meditated, as you'll know, it takes you into mm-hmm. a whole different realm. We know that. We know, mm-hmm. we know healing abilities. We know telepathy is true. Um, heck, we even know animal, you know, animals or a spe- other species. They usually they did a test recently with birds uh, with a blue tit. The bird. I don't know if you know about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, where in different parts of the world, the blue tit was trying to get into some food, and they wrapped the food in these different parts of the world with cling film. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, in a matter of one minute, one of one of the countries somewhere, some blue tip figured it out that if you just keep at it, you finally your beak will get through the cling film and you'll get to the food. In under one minute, that message was transmitted mm. transmitted in some sort of a quantum realm, of a form of communication to all of the other blue tits mm. in different parts of the world. They were tracking them simultaneously. So. Mm. This special skill we have, the X factor we have as human beings, is ours. I don't think we all know it. We haven't discovered it. But there is an enlightenment coming, I believe. And so mm-hmm. I feel confident about it. Now, when you look at uh, when you look at your work, the AI work, mm-hmm. I'm sure your next book is about to come out. Oh, by the way, one question I had. You wrote the book, what, a few months ago, okay? Since you've written the book, you've done podcasts, you've mm-hmm. met more people, mm-hmm. What would you have included in that book that you couldn't right now? If I was to say you have this one moment where you can alter the book and re-release it, and no one cares, no money, bang. What would you change? It's a really good question. You know, probably I would have gone a little bit uh, heavier on the kind of uh, workforce or labor market implications. You know, given that this, you know. Uh, a lot of what I was talking about was more a theoretical possibility, and now it is here. And that's yeah. basically something that concerns everybody. And I think, you know, the other one is what what you just maybe inadvertently alluded to, which is the importance of capturing or valuing the imperfection of humanity. Yeah. And, you know, and I would say the magic of novelty and unpredictability. And then, 
even serendipity, although I do have a section on engineering serendipity and rediscovering mm-hmm. analog pleasures as that, because I think, you know, you talked about meditation, etc. I mean, for sure, AI is not sentient, nor will it ever be. This is literally the, the technical term that I love, other than mansplaining as a service, of course, is a stochastic parrot, because all it does is it groups words together based on the probability with which they have appeared Correct. or the frequency Correct. which they appear before. And, you know, it's as, it's as um, conscious or aware of what it's doing as a parrot, basically, right? So it's, so, but I do think that, you know, capitalism is funny because it's mostly fueled by creativity. Right. Entrepreneurship is the main example, right? And innovation as creative distraction is that process. It, it gives us progress and it gives us evolution, etc. at the cultural level. But it's also a big enemy of creativity because as soon as something works, we try to standardize it and, you know, productize it at mm-hmm. scale to the point that we want to squeeze out any yeah. rebel activity or unpredictability of humans because they're managed. Yeah. So I think, you know, the fact that now AI is going to be this huge tool in the interest of driving productivity efficiencies for capitalism yeah. will will create a bigger need for us yeah. to kind of rebel behaviorally and value these things. So I listened to a really interesting interview. I think it was uh, the Adam Buxton podcast and Tom Hanks was there. And one of the questions was, what do you think about the prospect of AI and basically deep fakes being you and many movies made in the future? And you know, somebody asked me recently, last question, somebody's watching this conversation. It was a podcast like this one. Somebody's watching this conversation in 10 years time. How will they know that we were humans or we are? And I said, they won't, you know, maybe AI will, and you could argue, do we know if we are or not? I mean, you know, we think we are, but I think Tom Hanks gave a fantastic answer, which is, I hope this happens. And my legal team is looking at this because I will die. I can only do, you know, 10 more movies or 15 in my life. Mm-hmm. And actually, if there are a hundred movies where AI plays me and hopefully it'll be a younger and better looking version of myself, <laughs> that yeah. will probably increase the value of the movies that I have actually done myself. Yeah. A little bit like, you know, every fake Louis Vuitton bag that sells increases the value of the real one, which, by the way, is probably made of the same ingredients and materials, <laughs> yeah. but has a symbolic value that it has gaining, elevating people's self-confidence and status when they pay a hundred times more for it, you know? Yes. So I think, you know, we will value things because they are human-made, and maybe it's the imperfection, the unpredictability, the serendipity that will actually make it, make them more interesting and more real. You know, when you go to a restaurant and people seem so robotic on script when they say, hey, mm. Af, how are you today? It happens more in America than the UK, mm. but increasingly with any chain, you're like, oh my God, I wish I could interact with this human, not with the human trying to be a Correct. robot. Correct. Yeah, beautifully said. That's yeah. something, you know, like emotional labor is like the script that we're giving people. And the same goes for any process that we inject in workplaces etc and then we pay lip, lip service to creativity saying oh you know innovate be different don't fit in etc well let's hope that we actually mean that and that we value people for being 
themselves and or actually bringing you know their personality to these different interactions mm. which means worshiping and accepting or tolerating their imperfections yeah yeah you hit the nail on the head that's be- that's a beautiful example of the uh, of the, <laughs> the waitress or waiter at a yeah. restaurant in the states i mean i'm in london so i can i have the compare and contrast and uh, you're bang on i want to ask you one more question and then we'll move to yeah. my thought experiment i could talk to you for hours yeah. and we're going to do that offline in in physical okay. form in human form when you come to london you know my okay. treat sure. so but here's the question which is plaguing me which is about social the, the implications of of um of a, this generative ai and, and deep fakes let's stay with deep fakes because that tom hanks example yeah. is great on social yeah, yeah. trust, on social trust, on eroding social trust, because let's take the West, and then I'm going to take you into the East for a moment. In the West, we are a high trust economy, high trust society. Mm-hmm. You say you're going to turn up, you're going to turn up. You say you're going to sign the contract, you're going to sign the contract. You, there are barriers, and you in the barriers in the tube or the train uh, are there for a reason. You and you swipe your card, and it opens up, and you get to the next section, and it's not manned. Um, mm-hmm. That's that you know you could easily jump over in a low trust society, but you don't. You you pay for it, and, you, and that's high trust. And the West. Uh, by large, is high trust. I think it's fair to say. When deep fakes kick in, uh, that are you, you don't know to, whether to trust anyone. When Gen AI becomes so prevalent, where every essay, every book, every uh, every uh, you know blog, every tweet, every LinkedIn post is actually not me. It's just my AI, my co-pilot that's like mm-hmm. better than me doing it. Um, there are implications to that that um, would be catastrophic for our society that we've, by the way, now become so dependent with, God mm. knows, over how many years. So tell me a little bit about this concept of social trust in your mind, and then mm. we'll move to, to the East, and then we'll come to the thought experiment. Look, I think all those things are true. And first of all, you know, you can regulate or create you know, um, processes to actually uh, enforce the trust or protect the trust that people have, yeah. right? So, I mean, you know, um, LinkedIn uh, doesn't eliminate the possibility that you lie, but it actually makes it harder because there is a lot of there are a lot of people who are checking, and if you're lying in public, you know, and the same goes if you know, I mean, you know, uh, cryptography or um, blockchain don't eliminate the possibility. So, I think it's always a bit of a cut and mouse game or race and you know we can regulate for it i think you know ultimately we will feel safer trusting in the analog world and in in in-person interactions which is very interesting right because ultimately that always that always has a cost that makes it unscalable and unaffordable for it so you know like in 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 romantic matchmaking everybody has access to match.com or tinder but if you can afford a physical matchmaker, you sit down with them. Same in executive search, same in real estate, et cetera. So I think it's it's important to understand that a lot of the mechanisms that protect us from that and that actually fall on the people that have social proof and that are trusted experts are not so scalable, which creates an interesting kind of a conundrum for inequality if we want to reduce that. But yeah, I think, look, I think it's it, it's a challenge that will be a technology challenge, but it also will fundamentally be fueled or driven by ethics. And, uh, you know, I, I think 
ultimately, if the goal is to maintain trust, because without trust, we cannot function as a society, then we should believe that we can put in place the necessary measures to protect it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. And I think the jury's out on this because ethics, mm-hmm. again, is all over the place right now. I think we're all right. trying in our silos to do mm-hmm. something with ethics and regulation, uh, but it's, there's still work in progress, let's put it that way. Okay, so I'm going to move to just the interest of time. I'm going to move to this thought experiment. It's quite a serious one, okay. and it's an important one because um, it relates to a study, a, the recent study by World Health Organization on mental well-being. And it's quite a disturbing report. Uh, If you haven't seen it, you must take a look at it. And just a couple of statistics, one that relates to this generation and the next generation and the generations to come, which um, starts with this stat where one in three teenage girls are clinically depressed today. And they expect that figure is going to rise. Okay, Mm -hmm. It's not staying stable. It's going to rise. One in six adults uh, are clinically depressed and... A loneliness is a pandemic now. They really, mm-hmm. they genuinely believe loneliness is a pandemic. And this is very worrying. Um, and there are many factors driving this. And one of the concerns I always have is social media, mm-hmm. which, you know, as much as I am dependent on, you know, for me, it's just LinkedIn. Everything else is sort of turned off for me. Um, for, the, for the next few generations, the stories you hear from the ground around, you talked about dating just a moment ago. My God, you know, I was just having a dialogue with some some friends who were in their early 30s. I'm married, I've been married for years. I'm in my mid-40s, our childhood sweetheart story. For them, however, it's a it's a doom and gloom story. And I've learned so much about ghosting, breadcrumbs, all of these things that happen on these dating apps. That is, for me, it's the cancer of of um you know social relationships it's disabling what makes us human and uh, self-respect and respect for others and dignity is being torn apart in mm-hmm. these because of the, the the fact that you hide behind your avatar is is your social media and you hide behind that app and everything mm-hmm. happens on the app and even when physical interactions happen you forget that human behavior is is the beauty is human behavior, but actually the social, the virtual avatar is is is, is taking over your human mm-hmm. uh, self, and therefore distorting your behaviors. You're behaving like in an odd way, um, mm-hmm. where you're doing things that you and I would never do to one another. We'd respectfully say, "You first, so open the door, please. You go ahead. No, have a glass first. Let me pour the the, the glass of water for you." These small little etiquettes that make us human, and so I want to just finally throw the ball in your court for a second and get your mm-hmm. observations on this issue of mental health and the pandemic yeah. the World Health Organization is so ter- terribly uh, concerned about and terrified about. Mm-hmm. Look, so I'm out and, and I write about some of these studies in, in my chapter on digital narcissism in iHuman, as you know. So the data are very worrying and concerning. I don't think we can yet or to this state or this point, track visible changes at the level of the brain. But there are some studies that are already showing, you know, dysfunctions uh, that correlate with higher degrees or frequencies of exposure. And of course, it's a little bit like um, things really snowball. I mean, the more lonely you are to begin with, the more likely you are to gravitate towards these technological platforms, which in turn, increase your loneliness and increase the probability that you are anxious, depressed, narcissistic, and so on. So look, all I will say is that 
we have to regulate and we have to protect consumers. You know, the, the analogy that this might be equivalent to in the days of big tobacco that it's taken us 30 years to start warning people about the potential consequences and harms of smoking. You know, people can, you can still smoke today. It's harder and it costs you more money, but you know, at least people are warned and they know it and it has saved a lot of lives. I think we can probably save a lot of people from experiencing this awful psychological disorders or dysfunctions if we educate if we warn and if we regulate and then of course you know you know social media isn't the cause the root cause of the problem but it is in most instances like throwing gasoline to the fire because right. there are issues that are endemic to the problems that societies have which is why in certain societies these things are more problematic than in others but actually you know, we cannot change culture or society. What you can protect people against is tools that make things worse. So I'm extremely in favor of having as much research as possible, but also having regulations protect consumers, especially young people, teenagers, children, who, by the way, are simultaneously being told by their parents that they should not be on the smartphones or I, I, iPads while the parents are all day on these <laughs> devices, you know, and people learn by imitation. So I think yeah. even adults need not just some good hygiene and advice, but regulation. Yeah, yeah, that's beautifully put and nicely summed up. Even adults need um, hygiene and regulation. You're right. We all, we all, we are the role models and we are, you know, um, we have to lead from the front. So it's been amazing talking to you, uh, Tomas, and there's so much more we have to talk about. We're limited by the fact that you've got to go somewhere and I've got to wrap up for the day. It's a Friday here and you as well. And I've got my kids downstairs. I can hear them in the back garden. Yeah, hopefully. yeah, yeah. Um, but I have to I tell you that I, I can't. But listen, it, yeah, it's it's been a great pleasure. And also, you know, this is this is basically part one. And I look forward to yeah. the second, third, and especially the ones that uh, consist in analog experiences and encounters yeah for sure and before that we're going to have our own analog experience when you come to london where i'll meet you physically exactly and we'll have this dialogue exactly. you've been an amazing guest thank you for the feedback thank you for coming on the show i hope it's been a value and a good use of your time we've certainly benefited i will get you back on the show before your next book or in time for your next book where you can give us an indication of what you're going to write and i look forward to to being in touch thank you to my um, straight talkers and everyone who watches the show do click on subscribe at the bottom left or the right wherever it may be and I look forward to seeing you on the next straight talk this is me signing off Af Malhotra and Dr. Tomas Chomoro uh, Promusic thank you very much be well be happy have a great weekend thank you so much 